Last week we looked at gospel narrative, and this evening we're looking at um, a New Testament epistle. So before we get into the particular one we're looking at this evening, which is Colossians 1, um, just a little bit of background information about epistles. Let's um, just give us a bit of a refresher course um, on this. Before it comes out, the first question is, how many epistles are there? Anybody know how many epistles are there? Guess. Random guess, go for it. 19, not far off. 21 epistles. How many were written by Paul? Some. <laughs> the majority, yes. Uh, 13. Um, who wrote the others? James, John, Peter. Some we don't know. We don't know Hebrews, do we? Um, but we know Peter, James, John, Jude, and Hebrews. Could have been Paul, could have been um, Barnabas. We don't really know. Um, some are long and detailed, as it says here. Romans, Hebrews, quite detailed um, theology in them. Some are just quite short um, and snappy letters of John, for example. But what, um, what was the purpose of the epistles? Well, as you know, Paul, let's take him as an example, was a missionary. He traveled all over the um, Roman Empire, proclaiming the gospel, planting new churches. The challenge was that in many places he couldn't stay for very long. Either he was forced out by, by opponents of his, um, or um, the Holy Spirit moved him on to the next place, um, or he ended up in, in prison. So a bit difficult to, to visit people when you're in prison. Um, so he didn't have much time to actually disciple people um, in person. Uh, he did um, send uh, people like Timothy and Silas to go to these different cities. Um, and they needed quite a lot of discipling because they would have faced struggles living in cities of um, um, immorality, um, idolatry, um, false teaching, which we'll see in Colossians. Um, so Paul had gone and taught and there were people undermining his teaching. So if he couldn't go and visit them personally, he had to send letters to do that. And uh, what was um, important about his letters was that they carried the, the um, authority of an apostle. So they carried the weight of a follower of Jesus Christ, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he often introduces himself in the letters as an apostle of the Lord. So um, why did... Um, why did he uh, write these letters? Though he wrote them to instruct, to correct, to warn, and to encourage. Those were the four probably main reasons why. Um, they were all written to deal with a particular uh, real-life pastoral situation. So what comes through in these letters is Paul's personality, his character, um, and his concern for the believers to whom he's writing. These are personal letters that, uh, that are being written. Um, and some letters like Thessalonians, um, Paul was writing to maybe clarify an issue. Um, in Colossians, we're looking at here, he maybe wrote to address a doctrinal issue. And in others, he wrote to confront behavior um, uh, that, that he heard about. So he was applying theology, but in, um, in specific situations, so in practical ways. So what that means, if we're going to understand the epistles, you need to know something about um, the situation that has been uh, written to. Um, trouble is, obviously, we, we only have the letter. We only have the person writing it. We don't have what was coming back. We don't know what prompted that. So we're trying to put together a picture here and rely on others to provide some of the, the background information. 
So what are the um, steps we go through in reading um, an, an epistle? First of all, read the whole letter. Get the big picture. Um, note the main themes. Uh, get a feel for the, uh, the structure. And try and summarize the main idea in a sentence or two. That just helps you know where the letter's uh, going. Maybe there's a particular verse which acts as a summary, which you can just hold on to. So, for example, if we're looking at Colossians, um, main themes are the proclamation of Christ's supremacy, and that's what this passage we're going to look at in a minute um, is all, all about. Um, it's a warning about heresy that's coming in, the false teaching coming in. And uh, one of the verses that says here in chapter 2, verse 8, says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So it's a warning about heresy. And it's also an encouragement to maturity and holiness. The whole of chapter 3 is given over to the marks of Christian living. So if you were to try and summarize the whole letter in one, it would be something like the complete adequacy of Christ as contrasted with the emptiness of mere human philosophy. Complete adequacy, the supremacy of Christ, contrasted with the emptiness of human philosophy. And one summary verse uh, you might want to go for would be maybe chapter 2, verse 2, because Paul actually says this, this is goal. He says, um, this is coming up here, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that may, they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A couple of others you might be familiar with, chapter 2, verse 6, um, maybe chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, but um, I won't read those now. Um, Find out about, as I was saying, the historical cultural context of the writer and the audience. Some of this can be done by reading the letter, um, some by consulting commentaries or study Bibles. Uh, this letter tells us that it's written by Paul and Timothy. Um, it's written to God's people in the Colossae. Um, and it also mentions, during the course of the letter, the believers in Laodicea, which is a nearby town. Later, in chapter 4, we're told um, that Paul is in chains, um, he also talks about his fellow prisoner. So we're getting a picture of where Paul's writing from as he writes to the Colossians. So he's probably under house arrest in Rome. That's probably when he's writing it. Um, that's recorded in Acts 28, what's going on there. So if you want to date the letter, it's probably about AD 60, towards the end of Paul's life and his ministry. In verse 7 of chapter 1, we, we find out how the people of Colossae um, first heard the gospel. We're told there it was from Epaphras, who's described as by Paul as our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who told us of your love in the Spirit. We're told later he was an inhabitant originally of Colossae. So it appears that Paul hasn't actually visited Colossae, um, and if you were to read some of the background information about the city, the situation, you'd find that it's close to Ephesus, um, about 110 miles east of where Paul did spend a lot of his time. Um, it was once an important trading route, but it, apparently it was um, taken over by, by Laodicea, which is further north of Colossae. So the city is probably declining um, as Laodicea increases, but the believers from both of those cities are supporting one another. 
So a little bit about the um, historical cultural context. So I should be flicking this through as I'm going. <laughs> Can't remember what I put up here now. Um, identify the literary context. What is going on before and after the particular passage that um, we're reading? When we talked about this last week in the context of gospel narrative, but it's also important in epistles. So if we look at our passage, you've got the Bible open there. Have a look at it and see what comes before and after. If we look before, Paul is opening his letter with a prayer. He's thanking God for the faith of the Colossians, um, uh, for their love for God's people. He's praising God that the gospel is bearing fruit. And then he prays that lovely prayer which we prayed earlier on in the service. Then we have the passage we're going to look at in verse 15. Um, and then Paul goes on to talk about um, his suffering, his servanthood, his struggle for the believers in Colossae. He's saying to he's really sort of um, concerned for them. This is a real personal letter that he's writing for them. And that leads then into an encouragement to them to grow in their faith and the warning about false teaching. So that's the, um, the, the sort of literary context. But let's come on to the passage um, itself. Once we've got the context in place, um, read the passage carefully and observe the detail. And the thing with the epistles is that they're often very dense. Um, there's so much in just a few verses, so you can't really rush over them. You've got to really dig deep and um, dwell on each um, verse. And if it's one paragraph, um, it can be quite helpful to to break it down, um, to make it more more clear. This is how I've just broken down this paragraph. So let's read through it together. Well, I'll read through it, and then we'll have a look at it in a bit more detail. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. On to the next. Uh, no, I'm going to the next page. I'll go back in then. I'll read the next page from from the Bible. You've got your Bible handy. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So look, let's look first of all, and if we've got this passage in front of us, who are the characters that are being talked about in this passage? First of all, there is the son. And uh, he's mentioned uh, 15 times in those uh, few verses. Um, so clearly the key person 
um, we're looking at. Then if you go on to the next um, uh, part of the passage, um, it's all about the Colossians. Um, eight times is talking about you, you plural, the believers in Colossae. But then also the person who plays a key role in this, in red there, is, um, is God. He's there in verse 15, um, verse 19, and then over the page of verse 21 and 22. We'll come back to that. So those are the three characters, three main characters. But what are the recurring words that we um, come across when we, when we look at it? Well, several times we've got repeated this idea of all things or things or everything. So again, quite a key, key concept. Have a look at the, um, the, the propositions. The prepositions, sorry. Um, we've got in him here, through him. We've got for him. Again, another in, another through, another in. So again, they, they are significant. Uh, look at the conjunctions. Here we've got for, and, so that, for, and, by. Once, but now, to, or in order to, and if. Look at the, the pairs of words. We've got in heaven and on earth. We've got visible and invisible. We have thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And again later on on earth or things in heaven. So there's an emphasis on the sun. And there's an emphasis on all things. And um, what we need to look out for is how the sun and all things relate together. And how do these other um, prepositions and things um, help us understand all that? Let's try and work it out. So the first thing we, we learn about the sun is that he is the image of the invisible God. Now that sounds a bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? Let's just focus on that for a minute. The image of the invisible God. How can you have an image of something that is invisible? God, of course, is invisible. But he's a person. He has characteristics of perfect holiness, of justice, of love. And um, in order for us as humans to appreciate those qualities, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, who was with God in the beginning, um, took on human form. He came to live amongst us in our world. And so those attributes of God were seen in him too. So when we look at Jesus, we see God. It's not just a partial image of him. As it says in verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus was a perfect image of God. And if you look to Jesus, you saw God. And that is only possible if Jesus was God himself. It does raise the question, well, who am I then? Um, wasn't I made in the image of God? That's what we read in, in Genesis. And that's true, it does. We were made in the image of God. Our image has been through the fall. Whereas Jesus, we're told in Hebrews, was the exact representation of God and not just a poor reflection like ourselves. Secondly, we're told he was the firstborn over all creation. Now again, um, this seems to be uh, linked to, to the first a statement is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But what does it mean to be the firstborn of all creation? Doesn't that throw up a question in your minds? What does that mean, firstborn? Um, when you have um, Jehovah's Witnesses persuading you that Jesus is actually not God. He was um, the first person created by God. 
Well, to understand the term, it needs to, we need to look at um, where it comes up in the rest of the Bible. Where does firstborn used in other places? And when we look at that, what we find is that um, it's used to describe somebody who had a great privilege, a uh, position of seniority, uh, of um, priority, um, somewhat a special place in the Father's love. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 4, where we have Moses trying to persuade Pharaoh to free the people of Israel, um, God says to Moses, Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. Or if we turn to Psalm 89, where the psalmist is looking ahead to the Messiah, he says, he will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my saviour. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. He's being appointed his firstborn. In other words, he's been given the inheritance of the whole world. And in Hebrews 1, we're told that Jesus is the heir of all things. The created order exists for him. And one day, he will receive his full inheritance, which the church will share with him. So other uses of the Bible help us to, um, to understand these terms, but let's come back to, to our passage here, because the next um, verse starts with the word for. So there's a link here, isn't there? For. Why is he firstborn over all creation? Well, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So we've got here in this, this next little section here, at the beginning of the phrase, the fact that Jesus created all things, and it's repeated at the end of the, the, the uh, passage here as well. All things have been created for him. Um, so they weren't just um, made by him, they were made for him. Um, Jesus was instrumental in creation, um, which answers the question of those who uh, say he was a created being. No, actually he was the creator. And we know that again from John 1, don't we, that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So without him, but we wouldn't be here this evening, would we? And if everything was made for him then nothing exists in the universe for its own sake. Every person, everything exists for the sake of displaying Christ's greatness. All things have been created through him and for him. Well, the next assertion comes down in verse 17. Um, so here we finish this, this section here. You come down to verse 17 that was that bit there. We're told he is before all things. We've got another statement about Christ. What do, we, what do we learn about him here? He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, is that really the language used to describe somebody who was created? It's not, is it? He's somebody who creates, but also sustains. And that is very different from the, the worldview of those who would say either the world just came into it being by chance, um, or by some intelligent designer who then just left it to, to take care of itself. No, the world is sustained 
by, by Jesus. And it's claiming that Jesus is supreme over eternity. He was there before the creation of the world, but he's also supreme over what happens in the world today. And although the world is groaning because of the fall, Jesus does sustain. He does ensure that it doesn't just disintegrate um, before he comes again and renews everything. What else does it say about Jesus? Well, we've got another thing down here in 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now, this is like he's introducing a new concept here, a new uh, um, conjunction here. He's introducing something new into this description of Jesus. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now, there's that word firstborn again. Um, but this time he's the firstborn from among the dead. So he's the firstborn as the head of the church. Um, but how does he belong to the dead? How is he head of the church and belong to the dead? Well, because he was the one who first rose from the dead. Um, it's because of his death that his followers, that we can also look forward to one day rising from the dead. Remember Paul writing his letter to the Corinthians, he said, um, if there were no resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is a waste of time. But the fact that we are promised new life means we belong to the new creation. So if we owe our original life to him, and we owe our new life to him, our new creation, then it's no wonder that we have um, the conclusion here, so that in everything, verse the end of verse 18, he might have the supremacy that Jesus is supreme. And in case we're not convinced of that just yet, we're told that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. It was the great pleasure of God, by which we assume that means God the Father, for Jesus when he assumed human form, to also be fully God um, and to carry out his will for creation. And this is what's fascinating about this passage because although Jesus has mentioned many times, um, at the center of it all is God the Father. Although all things have been created in, through, and for Jesus, there's this great separation between God and all things. And so the purpose of Christ coming to earth um, was to achieve reconciliation between all things and God. How did he do that? Well, it's right there down at the bottom, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Making peace is another word for reconciliation. Um, it's because of this reconciling work of making peace that Jesus is supreme. And the importance of this act of reconciliation becomes clear as we go into uh, the next part of the, the passage, um, when the focus of Jesus shifts onto the, the, the Colossians. So, um, what, um, what do we, what do we learn about here? Sorry, just losing my place there. Um, well, now we, we've got this great contrast, haven't we, between what happened then, once you were at the top, but now something different has happened. Once you were 
alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That was the big problem, your alienation from God, the fact you were enemies. Um, But he doesn't dwell on the past. He says, but now, now the good news is that God has done something about it. Something had to be done. You needed to be reconciled. um, But God has done something about it. And although we were the cause of that alienation, um, of that separation from God, he was the one who took the initiative to reconcile us. And the greatest thing that can happen to us is to be reconciled to the one who made us. So he's reconciled. You, how? By Christ's physical body through death. The result, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And the condition, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? As Paul says in verse 23, this is the gospel you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. That is the message of hope, the message of forgiveness, the hope of innocence, the hope of holiness. That means whatever we go through, whatever we experience in this life, we can endure because we've been reconciled to our creator. And now we're at peace with the one who made us, the one who's forgiven us for rejecting him. So we've done a lot of work on the text there, and uh, hopefully um, that wasn't too, uh, too much of a challenge there. But having done that, just how do we bring it all together? How do we just sort of put all those things together so we're working out what is the meaning of all this, these different things that are going on here? What is the meaning of the text? Well, let's um, see what we, we came up with. First of all, we worked out that Jesus is God. And the Father was pleased that Jesus was fully God and fully man. We found out that all things were made by Jesus. They were made for Jesus. We found out that creation's biggest problem was its alienation from God. Our biggest problem is our alienation from God. We found out that God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself through the death of Jesus. We've learned that Jesus rose from the dead, therefore he's head of the church. He's supreme over the new creation. And we found out that now we are holy in God's sight. And therefore we can continue in our faith and hold on to the hope of the gospel. Now, when we see those things sort of crystallized there, those are amazing truths, aren't they, to really to take away. Um, those really just sort of fill our hearts with a great um, a love for, for God and all he's done for us. But we don't just leave it there because um, we want these truths to impact our hearts and our behavior. So what do we do with them? Well, we pray about them, and we're going to do that in a minute. And we ask the Spirit to, to apply these principles to our lives. Um, what is he pointing out to us in our lives? What have we maybe missed? What are we, what are we neglecting? What is the truth there that hasn't really sunk deep into, to our hearts? So, um, ask for his help to apply these things to our lives. Maybe the question is, have you fully understood the supremacy of Christ? And if we have, is he supreme in our lives? Because there's no point in understanding the supremacy of Christ if we just carry on leading our lives as though we are supreme. Maybe he's asking, um, 
do you fully appreciate just how serious it was to be alienated from God? And how much pleasure God took in reconciling you to him in that work of his son? How much God was pleased in the work of the son to be able to bring that peace between people and God? Have you fully appreciated that? And finally, does that encourage you to continue in your faith, to hold on to the hope of the gospel? Um, because the gospel is all we need for hope. But the questions that he may be asking you may be different from those. These are some that may come up. And finally, just to finish off, maybe just try and memorize a verse. There's some amazing verses in there. Um, you might want to try and memorize the whole passage. That'd be brilliant. Um, just to be able to recall those words when, when, when times are tough. But maybe just choose one verse and memorize it. This could be a great one to memorize, couldn't it? Um, for God pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Just maybe take that through the week and pray it through each day of the week. And that'll be a great one to just to reinstill in your mind and your heart. Well, we're going to have a chance just to pray now, and I'm going to go back a few pages to those truths um, which you had on the screen. And let's just um, praise God for them, and um, praise God for what he's done. And anything that comes out of that, that the Spirit might put on your heart, let's spend a bit of time, maybe small groups um, around where you are, just pray in these amazing truths that we've been learning about this evening. A few minutes to do that, and then we'll close um, with the group leading us in a final, final song.